Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So what do we learn today on this last day of January? I personally learned a lot. One of the things that I really enjoyed was a conversation with Norm Mitry, the president and the chief executive officer of the Heritage Valley Health System. You know, the mayor of Pittsburgh has been looking at nonprofits and saying we need to do an audit on them to find out whether or not they are living up to their nonprofit status. Norm Mitry from Heritage Valley helped us to understand exactly what that audit is all about, why he is for it, and why nonprofits, including his system, have to do this. Rick Dayton on the radio, Norm Mitry joining us, the president and CEO from the Heritage Valley Health System. Hello, Mr. Mitry. How are you at seven past four? Good morning. Good afternoon, Rick. I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on again. Hey, just last week, Mayor Ed Ganey in the city of Pittsburgh announced his audit of those Pittsburgh organizations claiming tax exemptions under charitable status. And I think a lot of people automatically assumed that he was talking about UPMC, which is one of the largest uh, employers, not only in the state of Pennsylvania, but this entire part of the country. But they're not the only one. I mean, there's AHN, there's Heritage Valley, there's Butler, there's Excella, there's Westmoreland. There are a whole bunch that sort of fall under this umbrella. So I wanted to go to somebody who deals with this sort of thing all the time, even though your facilities don't necessarily fall under the auspice of the city of Pittsburgh. Help us to understand what exactly this means, what you have to live up to, what you have to do by being in that particular classification. What does it mean? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to compliment Mayor Ganey because, you know, the fact that he put out there they want to do an audit, you know, any any organization does an annual audit of their operations. And I think his approach to audit the organization's before just saying what he's going to do is an excellent approach. So I'm going to compliment him for that. Okay. We, we all, in our respective communities, we all go through these types of audits or reviews with our local school districts and municipalities. So this is something that is not new. Uh, quite frankly, it really got its start back in the very, very early 90s, and it has surfaced a couple times uh, through different regimes in the city of Pittsburgh. It came out of the city and Allegheny County, frankly, originally. And so as this sort of got, uh, the gentleman's name was Ira Weiss, who sort of started this whole thing back in the 90s, is my recollection. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it started this all down this audit process where organizations are audited by their respective municipalities to make sure that 
the buildings and the real estate that they were occupying was being used for a charitable, charitable purpose. And just so the listeners know, that even means going through a building. And if things are in there that, like, for example, if we rent space in one of our hospitals to a taxable organization, then that's taxable for real estate taxes for us. And so we have because you are the owner of it, right? Because you own it, you're the one that's liable for it. You have to take care of the taxes. But even though it's a tax exempt building because of the parcel it sits on, if we have taxable functions going on, it's taxable. Yes. So the audit is a wonderful approach, if you will, to peel back the onion to figure out who should be paying what and what what. And it was actually in the article, and it's a it's a term payment in lieu of taxes, which is lovingly called a pilot. And we all, Heritage Valley has pilot agreements with organizations in Beaver County and in Allegheny County. Uh, Butler probably has them. St. Clair has them. We all have pilot agreements to support uh, our communities because we all, all of us end up being the largest employer in our respective communities. Sure. Therefore, we occupy a good bit of land, which is exempt for real estate taxes because you're providing a charitable purpose. So, so if we're you know, looking at a pilot, if we're looking sorry, at a pilot, Norm, give me an idea of how does that compare to if you had paid taxes on it? I mean, is it is it basically the same amount? I mean, in lieu of, to me, says you're doing it instead of paying taxes. But if you're paying $20,000 and on taxes you would have paid $400,000, that's a pretty good deal. Do you see what I'm saying? So how do we, as the taxpayers, know that we're not footing the bill for somebody else. Because if you're providing a charitable purpose for that community to where people can come to your emergency departments or see physicians, mm-hmm. regardless of their ability to pay, that's, if you will, your charitable purpose. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. So you do look at that. And when people say, uh, and I will, you know, I'll give you an example that, You know, we have a couple different pilots. Uh, I'll give you an example of a pilot uh, to where we're the tallest building in one of our towns. Okay. So we're the tallest building. The fire department probably needs a large ladder truck. Uh Uh-huh. So we support the ladder truck. Because that's the only way that you can have fire services to a building like that is by having a ladder truck with that kind of reach. And they wouldn't need the ladder truck if it if weren't we for you. Didn't have a building in that community. Interesting, interesting. So when you say you support the ladder truck, what does that mean? Does that mean that you have to pay the maintenance on it? Does that mean that you buy it for them? I, I, help us understand the financial arrangement. Oh, uh, the financial arrangements are. Let me just say, to your listeners, somewhat negotiable. Okay. Gotcha. So there's and, not a hard, fast be, rule. There's not one rule no. for everybody. Okay. No, it could be anything from buying the truck to uh, the maintenance on the truck, servicing it, uh, and and you you know a truck lasts about forty years. Yeah. So you know you spread it over those forty years, and you know clearly it is the right thing to do for the communities where you occupy such a large footprint of land. And you know, folks, uh, your listeners should be somewhat comfortable of what UPMC has done before, AHN the community health systems, I think we're all very interested in supporting the communities. 
what is really good about his audit and what I like about it is what might have been audited five years ago, more things would have built, have been built and evolved that might mean a larger pilot agreement for that respective uh, community, if that makes sense to you. So is there anything from an enforcement standpoint that can come out of an audit? Meaning you can audit somebody and find out, okay, well, this wasn't necessarily handled as well. But if you don't have any enforcement authority, it doesn't matter. So is there some teeth to an audit like this? Well, absolutely. Because if, in fact, they audit something and they find something and and a negotiation ensues and you're unable to come to terms it can go to court yeah okay so that's the issue is that it ultimately ends up in arbitration if necessary to resolve that particular dispute absolutely yeah it's an interesting topic and that's why i'm glad you raised it and uh you know clearly you know we've spent so many months talking about COVID and those things and Mm. we can talk about uh rescinding next week but i was really pleased that that you wanted to talk about this today because the average person probably doesn't know a lot about how uh, eds and meds in southwestern Pennsylvania, healthcare and education, we applaud the area for having such a high level of eds and meds, but it has an impact on the real estate uh, tax uh, structure of a community. Yeah, no question about that. Norm, it's always good to uh, to be able to ask these questions to you and, and help you to understand, help us to understand how it works. So thank you for your uh, your insight into these matters. We appreciate it. Have a good week. Yep, great stuff. Norm Mitry, the president and CEO of the Heritage Valley Health System here on KDKA. Also today on the program on Rick's Reading List, I took a look back to the mid-1860s. Abraham Lincoln had just been assassinated at the tail end of the Civil War. Robert E. Lee's army had just surrendered. It looked like the war was over when John Wilkes Booth shot and killed Abraham Lincoln. The book Manhunt is the 12-day search for the killer of Abraham Lincoln, and it's the story that I reviewed today on Rick's Reading List. I committed to reading at least one book a week, and here we are, end of January. This is the, I believe, fifth book that we are reviewing on Rick's reading list, and this one is called Manhunt. Manhunt is written by James Swanson. There's a number of books by that name, but if you're looking for it, the full name is Manhunt, The 12-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer. This is a book that was released back in 2007, but I had not read it or even heard of it until one of our uh, bosses here, uh, Dave Labrosi, said that he had read read this book. And as a matter of fact, he had suggested it uh, to Bernie McGurk, who, if those of you who know uh, New York media, know that he was on as a news guy with Don Imus for years and years on Imus in the Morning. Dave had worked with him, and they were both big history buffs, and, and he and Bernie had gone round and round about this book. And it is about the murder of Abraham Lincoln, the assassination that took place at Ford's Theater by John Wilkes Booth. And the story basically takes off slightly before, right as the Civil War is essentially ending. Now, when I say essentially, it wasn't really fully over. Because even though Lee's army had surrendered and basically given up, and that was the biggest one, the Army of Virginia, and once it had given up, then you knew that pretty much it was over. But there were still some in Texas and faraway parts that were um, you know, part of those rebel forces that didn't really realize that the war was over. So while it was done, it wasn't entirely finished when John Wilkes Booth decided he was going to murder Abraham Lincoln. And so he was the one, the assassin, who 
came after Lincoln, shot him, and killed him at the Ford Theater. What then evolved was, I think it's hard for us to even comprehend. It's hard for us to comprehend that somebody who shot and killed the President of the United States could be at large for that amount of time. It's impossible for us to comprehend how somebody would shoot the president, jump down on stage at the Ford Theater, say a couple of things, race out the back of the theater, jump on a horse, and take off for Maryland. But that's what happened. That is the history of it. And what Swanson's book is about is a moment-to-moment account of what John Wilkes Booth did and what the Union forces did, because those were the military men of the North who had basically just won the Civil War. But this is an example of a you-are-there sort of accounting of what Booth and one of his co-conspirators had done to stay away from the authorities and what he planned to do. James Swanson really has written a terrific account of that in terms of what happens. The thing that I, there were many things about it that I didn't know, and I like to think of myself as being pretty well read, and I like to think of myself as being a student of history, but I did not realize that John Wilkes Booth was a very well-known actor. And so for him to shoot Lincoln at the Ford Theater, he would have played that place many, many times, known the ins and the outs of it, right? So for him to do it at the Ford Theater, and by the way, Ulysses S. Grant was supposed to be there that night in the box with Lincoln. So it may have been a way that if everything had gone according to plan, he would have shot Grant and shot Lincoln, which ultimately was the 16th and 18th president of the United States, but that's a whole other story. But what it does is it goes through those 12 days and what happened as they searched and how Booth managed to evade. Part of what he did in terms of the evasion of them and staying away from them was he broke his leg. John Wilkes Booth broke his leg when he jumped from the box that Lincoln was shot in down onto the stage. And as a result, he couldn't move. He couldn't run. He rode a horse and took off like crazy with the adrenaline flowing and things like that. He was able to get away. But ultimately, he couldn't walk. He couldn't run. So some people hid him literally in a pine thicket for days. And people were thinking that he had gotten farther away from Washington, D.C. than he really had because nobody would have thought to look in this pine thicket there in Maryland as he was trying to get to Virginia. Manhunt does a remarkable job of spinning this tale of what happened until ultimately some 12 days later as he tried to get across this river and tried to get across that creek and was sleeping in barns and sleeping in people's houses and they got a little suspicious of him and the Union troops and the cavalry were coming along and he meets up with some Confederates. I mean, the whole thing is just a really very readable account of what happened. Now, there were some things about it that I was not crazy about. I thought there were a couple of times when it sort of strayed off course and would give away a little bit of information that at the time you didn't know. And it says, well, this person would live to be, you know, 85 years old and die in 1895. Well, I didn't know if the guy was going to die or live. I would rather find that out later on in the book or in a tail end in some notes rather than, but those are just very minor tweaks. I thought it was something 
that frankly not a lot has been talked about in terms of what Booth was doing and how he got away. So if you're looking for it, James Swanson, S-W-A-N-S-O-N, the book again is called Manhunt. And the subtitle is The 12-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer. It really is a very thorough review of what happened, the narrative of the search for Abraham Lincoln's killers. Now, there were some other people who were involved, and there were some other co-conspirators who were immediately captured. There were some others who were trying to kill members of his cabinet, uh, including, uh, I believe, Secretary of State Seward, who was stabbed. Um, but there, it is. It's a, it's a really, really interesting look back to the 1860s after Lincoln was killed and Booth got away for not quite two weeks until finally he was found in a barn and killed. Uh, And that was the the end of that particular story. But an interesting read. Again, it's called Manhunt, and it's by James Swanson. And it is this week's featured read on Rick's Reading List. Also, there are young people, many of them, who are getting a tremendous amount of money from their parents. As a matter of fact, more than three in 10 adults admit that their parents are paying for at least one of their bills. 35% actually of the 2,000 people surveyed say that their parents are paying either their rent, their groceries, or their utilities. As a matter of fact, about three quarters of those respondents say they're going to keep Uh, having parents do that for the next couple of years. Others are going to say they're going to ride that wave until they're told otherwise. What do you make of that? We put the question to the people of Pittsburgh, and here is some of what they had to say. Talking about a lot of different things as it relates to parents paying some bills for their adult kids. And we're talking about a lot of different things that come up. Some of them have to do with student loans and issues like that. Let's go to the phones right now. Bring in Joe. Joe's calling us from Delmont today. Hi, Joe. You're on KDKA. How are you? Hey, good, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, you're welcome. I'm a certified financial planner. I've been working with this now for about 20 years. Yeah. I see it every day. Um, so parents paying something for their kids, is that what you're saying you see? Well, just you have that and just the fact that people just don't know a whole lot about it. Oh, um, I got gotcha. you. Okay. Financial illiteracy is just terrible, and it's it's almost mind-blowing, you know, things that we assume with the basics, and it just kind of goes right up the line and through generations, so it's... How do it's we really fix something. it, Joe? I mean, how do you how do you help somebody if they come in, they're 37 and 39, and they're trying to set their kids up for success? How do you help them get up to speed if they're not so sure about these things? Yeah, I, I actually, my, my practice is almost strictly educational. Is it really? Kind of, I've been at it long enough that I kind of just took, took the line of going out and educating people. So I do seminars and I do one-on-one workshops. Um and and that seems to work real well when you have that obvious the personal touch. So sure. I I emphasize that and and it's just a matter of somebody taking the time to sit down. Um, but they've got to they've got to hear it from someone, right? That someone's got to well, be willing to help. Yeah, and that and that's one of the concerns, you know, that people get so much stuff off the internet and so much inaccurate stuff mm. that they they don't know which which way to turn sometimes and it's a matter of maybe taking the time and reaching out or, you know, us in the financial industry, taking the time for us to reach out to people and, and do it in a way that we're not, you know, too often people disguise education as sales or sales as education. And and it has to be 
you know, genuinely educating people, starting with the basics and then going from there. And then that helps the parents understand. And, you know, once the kids get out of that rut or get out of that mindset, they're more than happy to go on their own. It can be transformational for a long time. It can be generational change there, too. Great stuff. Joe, thank you for the call. Let's bring in Kim from the South Hills. Hi, Kim. You're up next on KDK. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Um, I just want to say I was born and raised in the South Hills. During the 1970s, I was in high school. Okay. My father one day said to me, come here. I want to tell you something. And I said, what? He said, you're going to have to get a job when you graduate. And I said, oh. He said, I'm not charging you rent. And I'll buy your food. But you're going to bring money home every week to let me see how much you got. So I went out and I got jobs and jobs and jobs. And in those times, they were 75 cents an hour. Mm. And the most expensive one I got was a dollar and a quarter an hour, which I thought was amazing. You thought you were just tonning it, right? You thought you right. were making man yeah. over fist cash. Because my family believed you had to work. Yes. When you got old enough, my dad would say, when I was your age, I worked at Greyhound Bus in the little cafe yeah. as a cook. And I made 75 cents a day. About an hour, 75 a day. Yeah. At what wow. age did he say you needed to go to work, Kim? How old were you when he, he said you? He told me when I was 11th grade. Yeah. I wasn't even right. 18 almost. Hadn't even graduated yet. And I went. Yeah. And then when I graduated high school, I thought, well, I'm clear. I earned all this money. And I said, my dad, can I go to community college? He said, you got the money to pay for it? Yeah. And I said, no. Well, I'm not giving you money. You go work again. Got to figure it and out I again. Did. Do it all over again. And I again. got myself through colleges, and I had a great career as a paramedic. And then I became a teacher. I got a degree from Carlo College. Good for you. And you paid and for I it as you went, through. right? You paid for it as you went. Right. And yeah. you know what? These parents today are stupid. If they were like my family, hey, get a job where you see the door. I don't disagree with that. I'm not going to call them stupid, Kim, but I, I understand what you're saying. And I, and I and kudos to you for the fact that you learned that lesson, uh, maybe the hard way, but at the same time, you clearly learned it from your father and were able to pass that along and turn it into a whole bunch of success, it sounds like. Thank you for that call. To Nate in Pittsburgh. Hi, Nate. You're up next on KDK. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, real quick, I just want to say I agree with all the – the you know the callers about raising the kids and getting them to work and all those things. You know, when my dad you know told me early on, money doesn't grow on trees. Mm -hmm. Learn how you know, where it comes from. Yeah. But you know, being a highly educated person, I went to various levels of college, and you know the, I, I made sure that they were you know worthwhile degrees that, that could pay off. You know, back at the end of the the uh, graduation, and they have. But I look at what's happening now with colleges. And hearing that one caller say he spent two hundred thousand dollars on his, you know, his kids' college, you know, at the eight percent rate, and, I, and I've been kind of watching this ever since I graduated from law school. Yeah. You know, the, these these college um, tuition costs and room and board have gotten so out of control. Insane. It's almost impossible to pay as you go. You you, you just can't do it. Sure. How are um, you going to have a job that you're making seventy five thousand dollars a year to go to a private school? Yeah, no, you nailed it, Nate. You can't well, do that because you don't have a job that pay. That you don't have an education well, to pay you that. You can't. You can't pay it back. And then, but don't forget, there's also the cars that now cost 
for a Blazer yep. or what you know, equivalent. Yep. A brand new one, eighty-five thousand. Yeah. You have a you know houses are through the roof. You need twenty percent. Oh, another hundred thousand for twenty percent because the house is four hundred thousand. Yeah. I mean, there's not much room anymore for for younger adults to even enter into the middle class no. without having a helping yeah. hand. So I'm very concerned about it as a citizen of the country, and I don't know what we're going to do. But I, I, I do think you have to be able to pull yourself up somehow, and, and we got to look at these colleges. Why is it such a, a racket? You know, it should cost ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year to educate somebody. I think I that the next, I, I think the next big bubble that's going to burst is the tuition bubble, and I, I've said that before that it's some, it's not sustainable. And at some point, do kids need to go to school where they have granite uh, countertops in their bathroom in a private bathroom in their room? I don't think they do. Now, maybe that's me saying get off my lawn because I didn't have that when I went to college, and my college dorm room was eight by ten, and I shared that with another guy for all four years that I went to college. But that's right. just but here's, here's the other that to our kids they're selling it to the kids it's a it's a yes it's almost like a yes. skim of the american economy to, to prop up a certain group of a- academic elites who just want to have high salaries yeah. work on these big fancy campuses and they really don't give a damn about the kids having a job and being able to pay it back i want one more quick story i went to law school they made me sign papers you know and they, all the schools do this for your loans and all that early on they get you to sign them not once during any of my academic career did they ever talk to you about repaying it, except for the last day, the last day. <laughs> so wow. it, there's something wrong with it. Yeah, it's the broken. Aren't the problem it's the, it's the schools and the way they're financing things. There's no question it's broken. And money is really easy to come by if you want to borrow up for education, right? I mean, you can borrow as much as you want, no doubt. Nate, thank yeah. you. Well, that, thank you so much for that call. Great call from Nate right there, who's been through it. Undergrad, law school, et cetera. He has seen it multiple places. Back to the phones we go, talking about the number of young people who say that their parents are paying at least one of their bills. 19% say that they're getting money from their parents for their rent. 19% say they're getting it for groceries. 16% say they're getting it for utilities. And you look at the overwhelming numbers. Some have even said they're going to ride this as long as they possibly can until their parents cut them off. Let's go back to the phones right now and bring in Jay. Jay's calling us from Zillion Opal today. How are things in Butler County today, Jay? Snowy? Cold? It's a little bit cold, but the sun's out and bright. Oh, nice. Good there. Nice. We have no sun in Green Tree today. I mean, it is just as gray as can be. Maybe I'm coming to Butler County when I get off work. Yeah, yeah. It'll be uh, dark by then, I however. I <laughs> to tell you, like, my son, though, I'm very impressed. Uh, I never, uh, I got my inheritance. I gave 1500 bucks for, uh, fix his teeth but besides that he's a he took a car loan out in my name paid the payment on time every time held my credit yeah uh, yeah he i think the responsibility could miss the generation here my dad's a hard-working man i'm not that i'm not hard working but i just never liked any jobs i ever had until it was finally like you know i worked my dad was really mad i got a job the neighbor got me a job at a steel fabricating place i worked four days and quit oh was my dad mad because he got you in there and it was so hard to get in and you didn't want to keep that job right yeah the neighbor guy i just wanted it was paying a 240 an hour and i was winning like 50 75 bucks 100 bucks if i played pool yeah you, know, you can't do that the rest of your life and <laughs> another job the neighbor got me and i worked one day oh my dad was real i uh, he didn't throw me out or anything. Now, my, see, one of the things is my parents never worked us that hard as doing chores because they were overworked when they were kids. They kind of overcome. Oh, so they went the other direction. Got it. Got it. So where did your son then get that work ethic, do you suppose, Jay? 
I don't know. He well, you know what? He he was help, helping me out, and uh, the and the one neighbor guy said, uh, "There's not much hope for Ben's friend, but Ben is." I don't know. He just got it. He started working. He, he didn't have any. He did that thing where you did the Liberty thing with the tax thing. He did that. And yeah. He worked at Burger King, and then he got this job at Comcast, and he was going door to door. I thought it last a week. And my brother says, like father, like son, because I did Dish Network. I said, no, not me. I said, I knock on five doors and get rejected. I'm sitting in a coffee shop. So you're done. Yeah, that's but right. And just persevered, and he made like 80 grand a year. Now he still works for them. He works out of the house on the in call thing. How about that? How about that? No, it is remarkable. And it's, it's to me, it also, you can't tell me that you didn't have something to do with that because I, I, I just don't believe that all of a sudden somebody just learns those things on their own. Um, but I think that it's also interesting to know that it is not necessarily exactly what the dad did that the son does, exactly what the mom does, the daughter does, right? I mean, it's it there it's not necessarily a straight line all the time. Sometimes it's, it's a little jagged. Sometimes it's a little crooked, right? Yeah, and uh, well, the thing is, I, I did when my first job I had was working at the neighbor's farm, and they worked us really hard. Mm-hmm. And I got two bucks an hour for digging a ditch to drain a lake when I was fourteen. I was mm-hmm. a dog of the neighborhood. Yeah, I got a ditch fifty feet long, and I worked hard there, and I got the hard the old folks. So then I got kind of straight as a teenager, and then I, you know, I started gambling and stuff. But I, I did. I was a decent worker though. I, 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 I never really found a job I really liked to. I started going lift an Uber a few years ago. Yeah, and the, the the work ethic was there. It's just that you didn't find something that brought you a lot of joy. Jay, thank you so much for that phone call. I appreciate it. Talking about people who say, hey, they're going to stay on, or they're going to, you know, they they have, are taking some money from their parents. Their parents are paying some of their bills, and I think it's just an interesting conversation. So thank you very much for being part of that conversation today. So those are the things we learned today on this last day of January. Make sure you join us every day from 2 until 6. We try to learn a lot together and from each other on KDKA. I'll see you tomorrow starting at 2. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.